Good morning, church. We'll be reading from Psalm 3 this morning. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Um, God in his, you know, kind providence, we set up these uh, preaching, <laughs> preaching calendars well in advance. And uh, so Psalm 3 has been planned for a long time on Father's Day, which is awesome. Because if you look at that little heading right before the psalm, you can see that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, who was trying to kill him. So... Hopefully the rest of you have a better Father's Day than David. Let me give you a quick historic context. Absalom, who's mentioned here as he's running from Absalom, his son, Absalom is David's third-born son. The Bible describes him as handsome, without blemish, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, but his inner life did not match his external appearance. Okay, so Absalom murders his older brother Amnon, which puts him one step closer to the throne. He is exiled because of this killing, like an honor killing basically in that society for three years. So he's away from Jerusalem for three years. Then he returns and within another two years being back in Jerusalem, but not seeing his father David during that time, he begins to conspire to dethrone his father and to basically stage a coup and become the king of Israel. So the way this happens is Absalom would go every day, and you know, he's, he's an adult man. He's going to the city gate early in the morning, the Bible says. And as people would come from different villages to Jerusalem, he would basically be the first to greet them as they come to the gate and basically saying, hey, you're coming for justice. You're coming to plead your case against a neighbor. Something's happened to you. And he's like, let me take care of you. Like, no need to go to the palace. You know, David's busy. Like, let me hear your case and handle it. And so for a number of years, he postured himself as like, this is how justice flows to the kingdom of Israel is through me and through my wisdom and my authority as he's given himself this authority. And over a number of years, he's gradually shifting the allegiance of an entire kingdom away from his father to himself. And the Bible says, and this is 2 Samuel 15, that after four years of doing that, day after day after day, greeting people at the gate, he goes to Hebron, another city. He calls all the tribes of Israel to come and follow him. He raises an army and he marches on Jerusalem. And David's counselors say, hey, here's what's going on. Your son is coming. And we read this in 2 Samuel 15, 30. It says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. 
So he's going basically from what it, you know, would become the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, going down across the valley, back up the other side, and then he's fleeing for his life with his family, with his entourage, as far as the Jordan River. Meanwhile, Absalom enters Jerusalem. He actually, at the advice of his counselors, he goes up on the rooftop of the palace sleeps with all of his father's concubines in plain sight, basically to say, like, shame on you, father. I disgrace you, your people, everything. He's deliberately disgracing his father. And then we read this in 2 Samuel 17. One of Absalom's counselors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And so when David learns of this plot and these 12,000 men are coming after him, he sits down and he pens the words to this psalm, Psalm 3, okay? And I share that historic context because you can read portions of this psalm and you can realize like they are unique to David's circumstances. You're not gonna sit here and pray this prayer back to God and be like, many thousands seek my life, you know? And you may feel like that sometimes, but it's not literally true, okay? It was literally true for David that he is uniquely God's anointed. He is a shepherd that was chosen by God to become king of his covenant people. And so he's praying for a very special type of protection, knowing, God, you raised me up for this role. I am your anointed. You chose me. But there are literally thousands of people who want to kill me. And this prayer for God to crush his enemies is just a very honest prayer. And by the way, sometimes you'll read things in the psalm, and I mean, if you I'm not even saying you feel self-righteous about this, but you may be like, oh, I would never pray that way about my enemies, that God would like crush them and, you know, punch them in the face and break their teeth out and stuff like that. And that's fine if you would not pray that. Um, what we're reading in the Psalms is, is how people felt when they were going through very difficult circumstances. So the, the inspiration of Scripture here is not necessarily saying you need to pray these exact words or you should feel this kind of way, but what it is is it's capturing a moment in time in real history where David the king feels this way. And he's like, God, I need your help. And what I want to do with this psalm this morning is I want to I kind of zoom out from what is uniquely true of David, and I want to show you how it's an incredible psalm that gives us this model basically for how do you deal with overwhelming circumstances in your life? How do you, how do you feel the liberty to talk to God when you're like, God, there, there's something coming at me. And maybe it is people. Maybe it is a relationship. Maybe it's something financial. Maybe it's something in your health. Maybe it's a, a whole collection of things. But when you're like, I can't handle this, here's a model for how you can pray. Okay? Four things. We see David did here. You're invited to do the same. Number one, acknowledge your situation. Number two, rehearse what's true about God. Number three, rest and work without fear. And then number four, trust God to act. And I'll go through each of those and show you how these are true and how you're invited to do the same. So number one, notice, acknowledge your situation. Verses one and two, again, 
David is writing, he's praying, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You jump to verse 6. Many thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. And if you pause and be like, okay, why is David saying these things? Does he feel like, like God, you don't know what's happening to me, so I'm going to inform you of something you're not aware of. And it's like, no, of, of course not. Like he, he knows God knows. But he's saying these things because this is simply what's going on in his life. And I want to start there and just invite all of you to pray like this. Prayer is not more holy. It's not more spiritual. It's not more righteous. It's not, you're not even invited to pray in such a way that you, you just recite cliches and Christian-y sounding things that you've heard someone else pray. Prayer can start right here, like David is praying, where it's just an honest conversation with God. And you're just like, God, this is what's going on in my life, and this is how I feel about it. And I may even be wrong in some of my emotions, in some of my thoughts, in some of my reactions. I'm just processing right now. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's, here's how I'm struggling. And as we continue to go throughout the Psalms, not only this summer, but in years ahead, Lord willing, you'll see this over and over again where someone is, is, they're not telling God something that God doesn't know, but they're saying, here's where I'm at right now and here's how I feel about it. And that's where I wanna begin. Just knowing on Father's Day, God is a father. He loves you. He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear something candid from you. I genuinely believe that he is not offended when he hears your perspective on what's going on in your life and how you're reacting to it, okay? So as simple as that point is, that may change the way someone feels liberated to pray, where you feel like, oh, I can be honest with my father because he cares for me. You know, and I'll see circumstances with, with my kids as well, where it's like, I saw a situation, but you wanna talk to them and you wanna hear their, you know, seven or nine or 17-year-old perspective of like, what's going on internally? And learning to pray that way is a beautiful thing we can do when we're like, I'm overwhelmed, okay? Just say what's true, acknowledge what's true, acknowledge your circumstances, acknowledge your reaction. Then number two, rehearse what is true about God. So you're not just stopping with like, well, terrible things are happening and I feel worked up and anxious and afraid. Rehearse what's true about God and call on him. Verse three, he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. And before I even get into what is David praying there with those three different kind of adjectival phrases about God, what's he really saying about God? What does he believe to be true about God? Let me point out something even before that. But you, O Lord, are the first few words of this, but God. And I think our, our prayers and our thinking should very often sound like this, but God. Like, this situation is really hard. I'm really discouraged. I don't have the resources to fix it, but God. Or this person or this group of people is being really critical, really dishonest at work, you know, taking credit for my stuff and I'm getting blamed, but God. My health is failing in all these different ways that I'm anxious about, but God. You may even say, my faith isn't what it should be. I know better, 
You know, my, my character is slipping. I'm not, I'm not trusting God right now. My attitudes are not in line with what I believe to be true. I'm struggling, but God. And if not chronologically, at least logically, the order is important. What I mean is you don't want to do this the other way around where you're like, I know God is sovereign and I know he's good, but my circumstances are terrible. And so I'm ending on this down note. No, what you do is say, my circumstances are a struggle. I'm scared. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm stressed. But God. And again, logically, where you're ending is, I acknowledge the pain. I acknowledge the brokenness. I acknowledge the lament. But this but God in your prayer language, in your thinking, can kind of be like this defiant statement of faith and hope and trust in God. Where you're like, I know what's going on in my life, and it's really hard, but defiantly, I rejoice in God and in who he is, okay? So look at how David does this. And he's going to assert basically the authority. He's like, this is the authority of God's character, what I know to be true of God. This is the authority of his character over very dire circumstances in my life, okay? First of all, he sees God as his shield. And the focus here of this word is on defense, okay? He's saying, even as the armies of Absalom come with, you know, 12,000 armed soldiers against me. And he's like, they are physically tracking me down. They are physically surrounding me and hemming me in up against the wilderness. And in the middle of that, he prays, you, O Lord, are a shield all about me. And this is interesting because David has his own armies with him as well. That, you know, he's, you'll see if you go to 2 Samuel 17, he's going to fight back. But he's not first and foremost looking to his own strength, his own authority, his own military and the powers that surround him and like how well are they trained versus the adversary that we're up against. His, his first instinct is to say, God, I'm going to be okay because ultimately you are my shield. You are my defense. Secondly, he sees God as his glory. And the, the focus here is on honor. Okay, the word glory is related to a word that describes the weightiness of something. Uh, I think of it this way. I mean, you can think of it many, many different ways. There are things in your life that are kind of flimsy and disposable. And it's not just that they have heavy. It's like there's no gravitas to them. Okay, like I have this, this wedding band, which I can't get off right now, but it's, it's titanium. It's heavy, has like this, this feel to it in your hand or on your finger. It's like, yeah, that feels like a wedding ring. And then I have these other like flexible silicone wedding rings that it's like, yeah, I'm going on a jet ski this afternoon. I don't want to lose my nice, you know, my glorious wedding ring in the lake. So I put on this little flimsy thing that still represents my marriage, right? Um, he's talking about something in his life where he's saying, when, he, when he's like, you, O Lord, are my glory. He's like, you, O Lord, are the thing that brings honor and, and weight like seriousness, significance to my life. And that's incredible because what, what he's doing is saying, I'm grounding my significance in my circumstances, or not in my circumstances, but rather in my God. And he's basically saying, even as my son is on the rooftop of my palace disgracing me, that is not where my glory comes from. That is not where my promotion comes from. That is not where my honor comes from. My honor comes from the Lord. He is my greatest glory. Thirdly, he sees God as, he says, the lifter of my head. 
And that could be one of two things, or maybe even both of these things combined. There's a way to lift someone's head as an encouragement. There's a way to lift someone's head as a promotion, okay? So it, it could literally be that he's downcast, and we have that expression of downcast, because what are you doing when you're downcast? <laughs> you're, you're casting your eyes down. And remember, he's saying, like, he has left Jerusalem. He's fled Jerusalem and he's barefoot, and he's weeping, and his head is covered. So this could literally be like, I'm covered, and I'm running for my life, and there is disgrace, and there is fear, and there is shame, and there is brokenness and all of that. And yet he's saying, even as I flee for my life, I'm trusting God to, you know, you ever do this with your kids, or someone did this to you, and it's really annoying. They literally take your chin and, like, lift your head. Like, look up. You don't have to stare at your feet. You don't have to be ashamed. And there's an encouragement to like, it's okay to look me in the eyes. It's okay to lift your head. The other idea, if, if lifting the head is a figure of speech that kind of stands for the whole thing, it could mean like to lift one's head is to promote or to lift or exalt the whole person. And in that instance, he's trusting God that even as my son has staged this coup and he has demoted me, he's like, I'm trusting God to be the one from whom promotion comes, okay? So the idea here is I'm looking to God. He is my encouragement. He is my strength. He is the one who ultimately exalts me. And then notice also, uh, finally here, he sees God as an active listener. Okay, so verse four, when he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And again in verse seven, when he's saying, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. He's not just saying, I believe in you in a general sense, God. I, I know cognitive truths about you and about your character. No, he's praying in a way where he, he is expecting a response because he's expecting, like, God is actually listening to me right now. So I can cry out to him, and it's not just words into the void. It's not bouncing off the ceiling. He's like, I believe God is an active listener and I'm calling on him and saying, God, I know you care. I know you're listening. I know you're going to do something in my circumstances. And I think as simple as that sounds, I think prayer-wise, some of us are like sitting in the dark and you're holding a flashlight in your hands and you're like, I know, you know, I know that this flashlight with these batteries, like it has the power to illumine my darkness and respond if I were just to click this little button you know, there, there would not be darkness anymore. There would be light. And you're, you're standing there, instead of just turning it on, you're like, I know all of these things about the flashlight and what it could do. Well, God's like, don't, don't say and rehearse intellectual truths about me that you don't expect to just activate. He's like, call on me. You know, and when you, when you flip a light switch or when you push that little button on a flashlight, you are calling on those batteries and that light to do the thing that they're designed to do, which is to illumine your darkness. In the same way, we're invited, okay, I'm acknowledging the pain, the brokenness, the stress, the overwhelming circumstances, and now I'm rehearsing things that are true about God and calling on him, believing that he's going to be active in my circumstances. So that's two. Number three, now rest and work without fear. I think this is so important, verses five and six where he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. 
And I think what I hear David saying is something like, look, if it were up to me to protect myself, then I would be anxious. David has smaller armies now at this point, and he has less loyalty of the people at this point in time than his son Absalom. So if he's just comparing militaries, he's not sitting back like, well, I killed the lion, I killed the bear, I killed Goliath, no big deal. I got this. You know, give me a sling, I can handle it. No, he, he would be anxious if he's just looking at, like, what are my resources versus what I know I left in Jerusalem and all these people coming against me. But that's not his argument. His argument here where he says, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. For the Lord sustained me. And what he's saying is, in every circumstance I've been in, the Lord has, and it's a word that could mean he's renewed my strength, or it's literally, he has given me everything I need. Time and time again, as a shepherd, later as a king, when I fall into gross sin, and I confess that sin to God, time and time again, he is faithful to give me everything I need. And I love this. I think David kind of understands this very basic principle that Ed Welch, you know, thousands of years later is going to write this book and have this phrase where he's like, um, the book is when people are big and God is small. But the idea is, if you stare at your circumstances and you stare and you just obsess and your focus is on like, this is overwhelming to me, I can't handle this, then God will be very small to you. He will seem almost powerless up against these enormous circumstances. But what Ed Welch encourages us to do is say, but if you flip that around and God is big, God is sovereign, God is good, God is loving, God is father, God is in control then your circumstances, while you're acknowledging them, are not the focus, they are not as big. And basically, they're, they're kept in the right perspective. And again, the right perspective of your problems is not to be like, I'll just pretend like I don't have any. That's not the right perspective. The right perspective is like, I acknowledge them. They're really, really bad. They're really, really hard. This thing I'm going through or went through last week or last month or last year was, was more painful. It was more excruciating. And the way I'm still reacting to that still hurts. But that is not the biggest thing here. The fact that God renews me, the fact that God gives me everything I need, that is the biggest truth here. Um, there's an old theological saying, work, pray, and sleep like a Calvinist. A Calvinist is someone who, at a very high level, don't come at me and like pick this apart. I know what a Calvinist is. I'm trying to make it simple. A Calvinist is someone who just... They believe in the sovereignty of God, and they're basically like, God is in complete control. God has a plan, and he has mapped things for my life that will kind of inexorably happen because God is sovereign and in control and gracious and good. And the idea here is kind of what David has latched on to. Yeah, I believe God is sovereign. I believe as he went to a field one day, through the prophet Samuel and raised up this little shepherd boy to be king over all his people, God has a plan. And God sustained me in all these circumstances in my life. I trusted him then, I can trust him now. And basically what I hear him saying in the Psalm is like, God, you've always been there for me and now I gotta sleep. There, there, there's an enemy pursuing me, but I'm tired. And if I'm gonna rest in me, I'm going to be anxious. 
I'm going to be up all night, but if I rest my soul in you and kind of like self-counsel, like through what I'm going through, I can go to bed and I can get up tomorrow and I can work in a way that just expresses a trust in you. So question is like, what fears keep you from experiencing that kind of peace, that kind of rest, that kind of hope where it's like, I can go to bed now. I need to go to bed now. I need my rest. And I'm going to sleep like a Calvinist. I'm going to sleep like I really believe that God is in control. I can let go of me having to have control. And if, if fear is too strong a word, then insert, like, what are you anxious about? Okay. And I talk to myself because I'm a person who can wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. And, the, and there's this restlessness of spirit instead of a uh, God, you have always renewed my strength in time. You have always given me everything I need. Um, and, and right now, the most spiritual thing I can do is sleep and let you renew, okay? What, what, what does this to you, though? What are you trying to control and avoid that you can't rest and work without that fear, without that anxiety? And some of you may just be like, well, you know, have you seen the prices at the grocery store and the gas pump lately? Because that, that inflation and then, then recession, and I was trying to buy a house, and I know several different ones of you are looking right now, and you're like, did you see what just happened to interest rates? And, and, and I would say those are all legitimate things, overwhelming things, hard things. But if God sustains you, you know, the, the price of something going up or the difficulty of finding just that right house is not an obstacle to God continuing to sustain you. Or you may be like, you know, random violence here at home. You know, and I heard about one on I-70 last night. And it's just crazy. And some of you may be that kind of, you're just wired to like see everything that's going on in the neighborhood and in our city. And there, there's violence and, and hard things and People are not good to one another. And, and maybe that's an anxiety of like, well, what if something happened to me or what if something happened to my children at our school? Some of you, I had a conversation with one of my kids this week about like um, just kind of like downcast and hey, what's going on? He's just like, I'm just thinking about like all those families in Europe where that country is attacking that other country. And that may be overwhelming to some of you too, just like turn on the news again and we're many months into this thing, and it just, you're, you're like, God, man, what is going on? And then people are talking about nuclear weapons like they haven't in decades, and you may genuinely be anxious about that. Or another election cycle coming up, midterm elections, and, you know, these commercials started during the sports thing, and I'm like, really, already? Like, what, do we have to do this? where like these very polarizing positions and like this terrible person over here is a complete hypocrite. And you're like, hey, yeah, you probably all are. And can I just fast forward the commercials, you know? And, but some of you get very anxious about that, particularly during election cycles. And you're like, why, why do our people have to be this way? Why is our country so messed up? And it keeps me awake at night. Any number of personal things like, like singleness, like infertility, the loss of a child, unemployment, under employment could keep you up. A major health scare. And I could, I could go through a ton of things, but, but God's talking to you through his word and basically saying, what is keeping you personally from resting and then working without that fear, without that anxiety? 
do you know this truth that David knew of like, I can work in faith and I can rest in faith because it is the Lord who has always sustained me. So I'm gonna lie down and sleep now. And by the way, many of you could stand up here and give testimony of like in the darkest and driest seasons of my life, the most painful seasons of my life when I was overwhelmed. And maybe in that time, I didn't see God there working in my life. But in hindsight, I can look back and be like, oh, yeah, you were, you were renewing me. You were growing me. You were challenging me. You were equipping me. You were providing for me faithfully in ways that looking back, now I can see, but in the moment I didn't see. By the way, that's, that's one of the importances of Christian community because a lot of times don't you just get in a place where you're like, I, don't, I just don't see God working in my life. And a friend could come and be like, well, I do. You know, and, and not like I'm trying to start an argument with you, but in an encouraging sort of way, be like, well, hold on. Like there's a lot of pet stuff going on in your life right now, but I see God faithfully at work even in your reaction, even in how he's growing your faith and making you a more tenacious and resilient Jesus follower, okay? So get those kind of people around you who, when you're not in a place to remind yourself, no, God's sustaining you. God's doing this. God's at work. And then you can, to quote another passage of scripture, then you can be still and know that God is God. I think it's awesome that Anybody who has kind of like a Messiah or control complex of like, I need to be in control of all these things in, our, in my life. Well, that, that's a very anxious personality because you can always count like, well, these are things that I don't yet have under my control. And God is like, well, there's only one Messiah per universe and you're not him. You can trust the one who is. And that frees you. I don't mean to make it overly simple, but if you're like, he's the Messiah, I'm not. He's in control, I'm not. He will sustain me even when I can't sustain myself. So it's nap time. And then as you nap, number four, trust God to act. So after he's prayed, believing that God is an active listener, so he's saying, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Then he continues, verses seven and eight, four. So now he's gonna give you the reason why he can pray with this kind of faith. And he says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, I think we need to get this truth. When you're praying, and I'm saying, trust God to act. It is a fact that God very often does not act in your life when you want him to or in the ways that you want him to. Okay, so when you start fencing him in, being like, let's be really specific about what I need you to do. Well, a lot of times we, we don't see down the road the way God sees down the road in his wisdom and his sovereignty and his omniscience and omnipotence. But we can trust him, this text shows us, for both justice and mercy. That is, we can trust him both to punish the unrighteous and to bless righteousness and faith in time. And we see both sides of that here. First of all, kind of the negative, the justice side, he says, God, I trust you to strike my enemies on the cheek. I trust you to break the teeth of the wicked. And the picture here is something that people from this culture would be very familiar with. The first is like a smack across the face. And apparently people did this to each other to be like, I'm insulting you. Instead of just using their words, they're like, just smack in the face. And it's like, wow, I feel insulted, you know. Um, and now I have this red mark glowing on my cheek. 
to show other people how humiliated I've been. So the first thing he's saying is, God, I, I expect you, I trust you, not just to defeat my enemies, but to, in a sense, humiliate them, to expose them. And then the second thing, like breaking the teeth, is basically this picture of like, you know, a, a, a snake or a lion or a bear or a dog or some kind of animal with teeth that would bite you and hurt you. And he's like, he just punches them in the mouth and breaks out all their teeth. And so now this creature can like gum you, but they can't like sink their teeth into you. And, and the idea as you put these things together is he's like, God, I trust you to render my enemies humiliated and harmless. And at the same time, he's saying, I trust you, God, to save and bless your people. And it's incredible here, the word salvation, when he says salvation belongs to the Lord, he's literally saying in Hebrew, Yeshua, Yeshua belongs to the Lord. That's the word for salvation. And it means to deliver, to rescue, to bring from a place of danger to a place of safety, to protect. And he's saying, God saves broken people from something, fear, anxiety, dire circumstances, but he also saves them to something. And this is the word bless or blessing. When he says salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people, that's a word that means peace, prosperity, and praise. Okay, it's the idea of if God is blessing you, he's like, praise you, exalt you, but exalt you with what? Exalt you with shalom, with peace, with contentment. He's sustaining us with all of these things. And I just wonder, as some of you are, are seeking to be faithful to the Lord, do you ever find yourself getting cynical like, I don't really believe my prayers are making any difference? You ever do that? It's like, wh why am I even praying? I prayed for this thing, this situation, this person, this relationship, the, the healing of this area of brokenness in my life for not just weeks or months, some of you years. And it's like, it's, it's just not making any difference. And I want to encourage you to let, let a psalm like this stir you to pray more like, I don't know when, and I don't know exactly how, but I trust you, God, to be just and merciful in my life. Now, how can we hope in that? Because I want to close here with this. Some of you could be like, okay, this is all nice for David in retrospective to read a psalm like this and be like, okay, go back to 2 Samuel 17, read the next couple chapters. Um, Absalom is pursuing David. He's going to murder David himself. And, uh, you know, his long, flowing, gorgeous hair, he's riding through the forest and he gets caught in a tree. And some of David's soldiers can come along and be like, let's see how many javelins we can put through his body. So there's this big turning point because Absalom actually essentially ends up hanging himself on accident. And there is a massive turning point. And you're like, well, well, great for David. He prayed these things and God literally did this. But again, what about circumstances in my life that God is not actively reversing, like how, how can I trust God for the kinds of things that he did for David, like salvation, deliverance from something really hard, and, and blessing, like contentment for my heart. And I want to point you to what this psalm is ultimately pointing to, because there's, there's another anointed coming after David. In fact, his name was Yeshua, Jesus. It's the same name. Reread this psalm, but put these words on the lips of Jesus. 
instead of the lips of David? Was Jesus overwhelmed by enemies that came against him in overwhelming numbers and force? The answer is yes, okay? And if anyone deserved an answer, like crying out, like rise, Father, Yahweh, and deliver me, if anyone deserved an answer to that, it was Jesus, the sinless Son of God. Yet foes are still rising up against him all throughout his earthly ministry. They pursued his life. They mocked him and ridiculed him just like they mocked and ridiculed David. They're like, he trusts in God, let God save him. But he's not going to, which is the ridicule here of like, David prays for salvation. The anointed one prays for salvation. God's not gonna save him. Well, with David, God did with Jesus, incredibly, as he's crying aloud to the Father, he doesn't get the kind of answer that David got. In fact, there's, there's no answer. There's no rescue. There's no deliverance. There's, to use the words of this psalm, there is no answer from his holy hill. Just heaven is silent. And God does not stoop to Jesus and say, let me strike your enemies on the cheek. Let me smash their teeth out of their heads so they can't do anything. Instead, Jesus's head is not lifted in glory. His head is bowed in death on the cross. Okay. So the first thing I want to say, if you've prayed a prayer like this and you didn't get an answer, you didn't get the rescue, you didn't get the blessing that you expected, Jesus can empathize with you. Jesus does empathize with you. And then this part of what's going on on the cross is that when Jesus is later going to pray for, on behalf of, intercede for a whole bunch of people who are like, you're not showing up with the kind of rescue I expected. Jesus can literally be like, I know what that feels like. But there's more than that because three days after Jesus is praying, deliver me, save me, and the ridicules are coming, like he's not going to save you, and he doesn't. But three days later, Jesus walks out of his own tomb, and he's put death to death. And I love the scriptures that actually say, again, you, you didn't see it happening on that day, but do you know what actually was happening on the cross? We talked about this Good Friday and Easter, about like Christus Victor. It's like actually on the cross when he's hanging there, bowing his head in shame, and Satan's like, yes, I won. The Son of God is dead. And it's like, well, but if the sinless Son of God is giving himself for sinners, that's the one thing in the universe that can break the curse and reverse it so that there's blessing for broken people like you and me. Okay, so Jesus is hanging there. He's humiliated. God doesn't show up. He goes in the tomb but God is working. And the New Testament actually says, in those hours on the cross, in those hours in the, in the tomb, and then especially when he walks out, he's like, the enemies of Christ and therefore your enemies are humiliated. And he says he, he, made a, he made a public disgrace of them by triumphing over them in Christ. And he like smashes him in the face. And I just picture that, like that snake in the garden where he says, you know, you're gonna bite the heel of the anointed but he's gonna crush your head. He's gonna stomp on your head so hard, you're not gonna be able to find those teeth and you're never going to be able to like sink your venom into anyone who follows this Jesus, okay? So I, I wanna be clear, like as we are 
preaching the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not that bad things won't happen to you. The gospel is not that overwhelming things will not happen to you. It's not this idea of like, God will only give you as much as you can handle. It's like baloney. God, all the time, he loves to give us stuff that you're like, I can't pick this up. And he's like, great, do you want me in your life yet? No, I'm, I'm good, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep trying. Like God often overwhelms us, so we're like, God help. I'm overwhelmed, but you're not. And maybe that's where God even wants to lead someone this morning, where you're just like, I, I need help. I've been trying to lift this load. I've been trying to push through something, and I'm tired of it, and I want to just do as the psalmist here and pray as the psalmist prayed and trust as the psalmist trusts. I think this is incredible. Our, our, our ultimate hope of a psalm like this is that like Jesus didn't get the deliverance that he deserved so that you and I will ultimately receive the deliverance that we didn't deserve. He didn't get the deliverance that he deserved, so we can get a deliverance that we didn't earn, that we can't deserve, okay? So our hope ultimately, you know, and I, I pray for God to work in your lives in real time in a way where you can experience that and not just be like, well, at least there's this forever hope. But I am absolutely confident of the outcome because God is working. So. Cope with overwhelming circumstances. Face your overwhelming circumstances just like this. Acknowledge your situation to God. Rehearse what's true about him. Call on him. Rest and work without fear. Trust God to act. Functionally believe that he's everything you need. And even when he's not showing up in your circumstances, when and exactly how, with the kind of things that you're exactly praying for, you can always look forward to the cross and be like, wait, you prayed this prayer of Psalm 3 and there was no answer so that every time I prayed the prayer of Psalm 3, there is an answer and there's an ultimate answer and an ultimate hope. God, help us to trust you in real time. Let's pray.